Hey, I'm Russ. And I'm Steve. Growing up in the 80s, we were introduced to video games, movies, and technology that made a lasting impression on us and forever enriched our lives. I think I'm gonna cry! It's been a fascinating journey to be a part of, one that we constantly treasure. Fire! Booty! Our goal is simple. Share our magical moments of discovery and geek out with lovely folks. Just like you! Uh, achievement unlocked! So if you crave pixel goodness, memorable moments, and experiences that make your inner child do the happy dance, you've come to the right place. Let's do this! Welcome to Joygasm! <laughs> yeah! What's up, everyone, and welcome back to Joygasm, where we talk about video games, movies, and pop culture. I'm Russ, Xbox Live, Toaster360, and Steve is out sick today, unfortunately, so it'll just be me, your faithful host, as we partake in episode 51 today on December 16th, 2017. The Force is strong with our show today as we are dedicating this episode to discussing Star Wars, The Last Jedi. It, there is a lot to talk about with this, so I'm just going to dive right in. Oh, man. So Steve and I went and saw it last Thursday, and we went to the IMAX theater because that is the way to see it. If there's ever a Star Wars movie that comes out, we have to see it on IMAX. There's just no getting around it. And actually, we ended up seeing it in 3D, which I was not aware of. I thought that I had bought the um, just the IMAX version. So it's kind of like, oh, okay, here we go. Let's do it. Um, there is an absolute ton to discuss on this. My phone was blowing up. I've had several people ask me what I think of the film. And as I mentioned earlier, Steve is sick. We've, we've been kind of trading viruses back and forth. And so unfortunately he has the flu and I think he was actually coming down with it when we were in the theater, which was a bit of a bummer, but, um, I have been processing the film myself and I, I guess I'll start out kind of like what, what I typically do, which is just kind of start out at a high level and then drill down into the cast and acting, the plot, the script, the dialogue, the cinematography, the soundtrack, and the wardrobe. So, man, where to begin on this one? This is this is a doozy. High level thoughts. Um, I'm just gonna come out and say it. Uh, I felt that the film had moments of brilliance. But ultimately, it was disappointing. I thought that, as usual, the film was uh, a visual spectacle that all Star Wars films are known for. I absolutely loved seeing Mark Hamill back as Luke Skywalker. That was like a, a huge treat right there. And I'm really digging the relationship between Rey and Kylo Ren. I think that what they are doing with that character arc is perfect. I, I'm very just fascinated with the direction that, that they are taking them. And I can't wait to see what happens next. There was actually as a, as a, a complete side note before I, I get too far into this, uh, there were these trailers that were, were being shown that actually had cast members from the, the star Wars prequels 
And there was a funny guy in the audience who, um, like one of the trailers we watched actually had Natalie Portman in it. And I can't remember what it's called, but it looks like some kind of sci-fi military, militaristic, uh, type of film. But after it was all said, like, I think the final scene we saw was of her just like kind of unloading with a machine gun. And the, the, the name of the movie, which, uh, escapes me for the moment comes up and, some dude yells out, Amadala! And it was just the funniest thing. Everybody starts to laugh. And then the, the very next trailer actually has a new film with Liam Neeson in it. And so it goes through the whole thing. And once again, like you get to the end of that trailer and, and the, the, the name of the movie comes up and the same guy like hollers out, Jin! And it was just the funniest thing. Everybody just started busting up laughing again. Um... Uh, and of course, it just makes sense. You could you could tell that that was not coincidence. You, they, they were certainly kind of helping out their their Star Wars alumni, as it were. But anyway, just uh, thought it'd be fun to kind of throw in there. So, yeah, when I, when I think of this film, Star Wars: The Last Jedi, I think that that, that at a high level, I've covered kind of the the main points of what I wanted to get across, but. Um, I want to, I want to do my best to try and partition my thoughts on this because I do want to be able to, to get to each and every one of these uh, thoughts and, and, and critiques of this film. So let's just go ahead and just, let's just dive in. Let's just do it. And, um, and we'll, we'll see where, where we end up. So um, starting off with cast and acting, I thought that the casting overall was hit and miss. Um, this is just my personal opinion, but I feel as though there is this participation trophy approach to who is getting hired onto the, to the, just the world of star Wars, you know, back in the day of the original trilogy, you really didn't have anybody that was, was really famous. Uh, I think Sir Alec Guinness was probably the one who, um, uh, with the exception of maybe, uh, the actor who I can't remember his name, but he played uh, Grand Moff Tarkin. You really didn't have a lot of, of heavy hitter names. And while they have in fact continued that on with this, this latest trilogy of movies, it's just, I don't feel as though they are hiring the correct actors to really um, fit these roles. And and I know that I'm being very picky on this and I think that I should be just because it's star Wars after all, but I, I just, I just don't understand. I, I, I guess I'll just go down through, through the list here. Um, you know, starting off with the first order, why do all of the people here, here's my first question. Why do all of the people in the first order look like teenagers I mean, if you compare the personnel of the Empire from the first trilogy to the personnel of the First Order, there is a distinct visual shift as to how they looked. Uh, and, you know, and I think to myself, Russ, is it because, you know, you're getting old? I'm, and I'm thinking, well, let me look at the old movies again. So I watched them again. And I'm thinking, no, like they're actually all of the commanding officers, even the ones who are not that high on the totem pole, they just have a more mature look and the way they carry themselves is just a bit more refined than the first order. The first order, they just, they get a kind of, like I said, it looks like a bunch of teeny boppers running the show. And I just don't understand why 
a decision like that was made for the First Order. I mean, granted, yes, if we were to talk about the original Death Star blowing up and a lot of the, the senior staff dying as a result, sure. But that was only on the Death Star. I mean, the, the Empire, the Galactic Empire had its tendrils all across the galaxy. You had senior officers all over the place. So again, I just, it's not something that I really uh, care for all that much. Going on to Andy Serkis. So here's a big positive to this film. Andy Serkis was sublime as always. I mean, this guy puts his everything into every role that he's ever been a part of ever since Lord of the Rings back when he was um, playing Golem. And it just shows here um, as Snoke, you know, he was just, he's always a treat for the eyes and the ears. I mean, like he, he, he is such a character actor. And so um, big thumbs up to him on that. Another great addition actually was Benicio del Toro. I mean, I thought he was great as DJ and it's interesting because DJ is not actually like, like his, his real name name. It's kind of more of a slang name, but DJ actually stands for don't join. And you'll notice in the film, I mean, he, I think it was on his hat or something. There was some kind of like, don't join. It wasn't a plaque, but it was something to that effect. Um, but I loved his take on the character and the social and physical tics that he had that you could see, whether he was stuttering or, or just some of the, the, the facial tics. Um, I loved how he was this cynical, opportunistic survivor. And honestly, this is what the world of Star Wars needs more of, is when I look at DJ, this is the type of character that fits perfectly within Star Wars. He's kind of a distant second cousin, if you will, to Han Solo, you know, where Han Solo was a smuggler. He was certainly out for the, um, his best interest. He was looking out for number one. And it was cool to see DJ come up in such a manner where he wasn't necessarily a smuggler. He was more of a hacker type. But I absolutely loved how Benicio Del Toro did this character. And I found him mysterious. I wanted to know more about him. I, think, I thought that was great. Moving right along to Laura Dern. So, um, Laura Dern is a, is an actress who I personally respect a lot. I think that, that she is one of those actresses that really brings a lot of, um, authenticity to her roles. There, there's an honesty, um, about, uh, the way that she performs her different characters. So I, I felt as though her talent was not utilized correctly, and this is basically due to no character development whatsoever. And I'll get more into that later on when I get into plot. But just for, just for those of you who are not sure who her character was, she was basically who I refer to as the purple hair lady. And so any, any of you who have seen the film, you know who I'm talking about. I thought Daisy Ridley was terrific. I think that she has made a wonderful addition to the Star Wars family. I think that that just her ferocity and her acting chops, just even her look is very Star Wars, which is great. Um, I also thought that Adam Driver was captivating this time. I think that that just really goes to show how important it is that when you spend time building up a character arc with any given character, how all, suddenly they become much more interesting. They become this very deep character as opposed to just surface level. And I feel like that was the case with Adam Driver. Now, Carrie Fisher brought nothing to the role. When you think of her, her acting chops, 
she she was just so frail and the way that she's talking just it's she doesn't have the spunkiness that she did back in the older days and <coughs> excuse me you can say well Russ you know she's old and I, and I thought about that but then I was thinking too about how well wait a minute Mark Hamill is is the same age. I think he's actually a little bit older than Carrie Fisher is, and he still had plenty of spunk going on about him. So really watching her on screen, I mean, she, she's known as Princess Leia, and so that's what she brings to the table, right? Is like everybody wants to see Princess Leia again. And, and I, you know, I can respect that to a certain um, extent, but in terms of the acting prowess and that sort of thing, there just wasn't a whole lot there. Now... Kelly Marie Tran was a newcomer in this film, and I feel as though she was miscast. I don't feel as though she fit in the world of Star Wars. She struck me as more of a Battlestar Galactica type character or maybe even a Star Trek character. But in Star Wars, no, I I don't think that that was a, a good call right there. Gwendolyn Christie's talent once again. This is oh, this is such. Um, I don't know. It's it's a head scratcher for sure. But her talent is being wasted um, throughout these two films. You have the Force Awakens, and then you have the last Last Jedi, and it's just what are they doing? And again, I'll get into that later. But just her character, Captain Phasma. Once again, <laughs> I'm just like. It's, it's just bizarre to me how they are deciding to handle this particular character because it has such promise. I mean, just from, from a visual aesthetic, there is so much there that could be just super cool. And instead, I mean, she is just this bumbling character. Now, it was surreal seeing Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker again. That, that definitely, I mean, Mark Hamill actually was one of the biggest high points of the entire film. And... I think that a lot of these characters, like when you watch Harrison Ford or you see Mark Hamill, even Carrie Fisher, you see Chewbacca, there, there is a certain secret formula that George Lucas did when he put these actors together that just works. The chemistry is just absolutely perfect. And so it's interesting to watch them back on screen again in a Star Wars film. And, and I cannot just drive this point home enough. It it is absolutely paramount that you are able to have a, the specific type of chemistry, especially in a star Wars film in order for it to succeed. And the new generation of characters that we've been introduced to, whether it's Finn or Poe or Ray and so on and so forth. Like, like they just, they don't have what the original trilogy has. And once again, I think that that part of that has to do with the acting style. But I also think, too, that it has to do with character development as well. And we'll we'll get into that. But um, I don't know how the, the, the casting has been brought about. When I think of the different decisions that were made... I, I do think that Kathleen Kennedy, who is now the, the president of Lucasfilm, I think that she's had a lot of influence in the decision-making for the different characters. Um, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me, and I, and I can get into this a little bit later as well when we get into plot, but 
when it came to kind of the 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 resistance hierarchy of of just just the, the order of operations like who who was in charge of who that sort of thing um i was really surprised to see the amount of females that were in positions of power you know you have leia who's at the top and then you have the purple-haired lady who was right underneath her and then under that was Another woman who, again, not to be insensitive, but she, she was a lady who, who had that kind of big nose. She was she was like the, I, I can't remember what her character name was, but she was just the big nose lady. And then under her, you had more of the, the blonde, younger lady who was in there. She had kind of like almost like, not pigtails, but it was like they were all kind of pushed up and kind of a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a Princess Leia cinnamon roll bun style, but it was definitely up and back. And the entire time I'm just, I'm thinking, where are the men? And it's just, it's, just, it's kind of funny because I know that there's been kind of a running joke about how in the original trilogy of Star Wars, it was mostly men, you know, like, like <laughs> Princess Leia and Mon Motha were pretty much the only women that you saw. And yeah, I mean, it, they needed to have a little more diversity in there and I'm all for that. That's, that's a, just a, a given, but it's weird to see the pendulum swing the, almost like the complete opposite direction in the sense that it's like, well, wait a minute, this is the resistance. Why is it that there are just all of these uh, women that, that are just in this hierarchy chain? Where are the men? So again, I'm bringing this up because these are things that it causes me to um, lose my momentum that I have when I go into a star Wars movie. And so if there are certain things that are being done in a patronizing fashion, it's like, you know, your audience is going to be able to, to, to sniff that out. They're going to, they're going to realize what's going on and it's going to cause the film, <clears throat> excuse me, overall to suffer. And so you just, you, you have a lot of that going on in here where you have the, um, I mean, even with, with the different actors in, in their roles and whatnot, it starts to, to kind of smell of political correctness. And I'm just like, why, why are we doing this? This is Star Wars. This is not the United Nations. You know, we, we're, we're above that. In fact, we go to Star Wars to get away from a lot of the stuff that goes on um, in our world in general. So again, I think it's important to be able to go back and forth with this because at the end of the day, we want to just have Star Wars. We don't want to have any kind of propaganda in, in these Star Wars films. We don't want to have any kind of patronizing going back and forth and, and just, you know, browbeating us over like, well, here, now, now let's show them what we do here. And and some of you may be thinking, oh, I think, you, Russ, you're, you're, you're looking too much into this. Well, I mean, just, just to give you an idea, I mean, going back to Kathleen Kennedy, um, she's revealed that six out of the eight people developing um, the force or who developed the force awakens were women, six out of eight. And she's gone on public record to say how she's obsessed with finding a female director for a star Wars movie. Now, while I do think that having a, a female star Wars director would bring in some interesting perspectives and that sort of thing, I think that that would be, um, a nice thing to have. I don't think that that should be at the top of your priority list of just, Oh, well, because they're female, then we'll, we're going to use her or we're going to use that person. It's like, well, wait a minute. I thought that we were looking for people who are the, the best fit for the job. And so you run into it. Hopefully you guys see what I'm talking about where it's, it's just, 
you start running into that and it's like, well, wait a minute. And, it, and also another um, side note too, is the fact that once Kathleen Kennedy had taken over the responsibilities as president of Lucasfilm, she also has updated the, I, th- I believe it's the board of directors. I don't, I don't know what the, the exact official terminology is, but I, I, if I remember correctly, she's made it so that I think about 70 to 80% of the people on that board are women. So again, it's, it causes me to question, okay, what is the purpose of this? Why are, why is there such this active role of wanting to do this? Now it's one thing if, if all these people are just absolutely exceptional at what it is that they do, what, what they bring to the table, then that is fantastic. I'm all for it. I just don't want to see the, the waters get just so turbulent with all of um, this political correctness that all of a sudden we have people who are placed in positions simply because of their gender or ethnicity, as opposed to, you know, what, what exactly, what kind of experience do they bring? And I will tell you that with Kathleen Kennedy herself, she is a very accomplished woman. I am very happy that she is, um, president of Lucasfilm just because she has this very long history of being involved with um, the various movies that um, Lucas has, has created as well as Spielberg. I mean, she has been around for a very long time and has done wonderful work on just a huge list of films. So I'm very, very happy about that. It's just when it comes to star Wars and when it comes to some of the creative decisions being made, I just, I hope that there is um, a, a pure approach to it, if you will, and not something that, that is bent on uh, some sort of underlying um, power struggle or, or whatever, whatever you want to label it as. But anyway, getting back to the film. So let's get into some plot action here. The plot had instances of brilliance, but some of the creative decisions I felt were flawed The story glossed over several key scenes resulting in really squandered opportunities for deep diving that would expand and enhance the mythos of Star Wars. The two biggest issues this film has are concept versus execution and instant gratification. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I'll be going through kind of a almost like a quasi linear fashion on the different plot points of this film. And hopefully it'll give you a good idea of um, just, just what I mean by, by these two things. So concept versus execution and instant gratification. Now, before I get too much into the, the nitty gritty of this, Disney and Lucasfilm are struggling with the post return of the Jedi world in that both the first order and the resistance feel to me like Thanksgiving leftovers in that they are like four days old. You know, they still taste pretty good, but it isn't the epic feast it was on Thanksgiving day. And I just want, I I want that to kind of marinate in the back of your minds as we go through this, but it's just, it, that that's kind of the vibe that I'm getting from them. But let's begin with the bombing run. So the star destroyers and dreadnoughts capabilities have been severely nerfed when you compare them to the original trilogy. 
you know, you mean to tell me that one X-Wing fighter is capable of taking out every major cannon on the Dreadnought versus how many ships it, it took to take down just one Star Destroyer in Return of the Jedi? This is a consistent problem throughout the First Order in that they are so utterly incompetent they have lost any real sense of threat. I mean, I no longer think the protagonists are in mortal danger when compared to the Galactic Empire. And why is it, <laughs> as a total side note, why is it that every fat pilot dies in Star Wars? I don't know if you guys noticed this or not, but during that whole like initial space battle, there was yet another like morbidly obese pilot that got killed. <laughs> Just like... What? But anyway, I, I'm digressing again. Back to the bombing run. So here you have these slow lumbering ships that are so easy to pick off, yet almost all of them are able to make it to the Dreadnought before being blown up. And also going back to what I mentioned too about how Poe's X-Wing fighter is taking on this Dreadnought class ship, which based on what I saw on on screen, I mean, this dreadnought ship is larger than a typical star destroyer. This thing is big. And it's just, you know, not only was the dreadnought there, but you also had multiple star destroyers there. I mean, you had a fleet of first order ships there and I'm, and we're watching as Poe is just able to careen through all of the, the ship's defenses. And not only is he able to evade them, but he's able to take them out just by himself. And I mean, am I, am I weird to think of that? This X wing that he has seems to be buffed quite a bit. I mean, really like, like you're able to take out, I mean, did you, did you guys remember the size of those cannons on the ship? And yet he's able to take them out with no problem. I don't know. Like, like that once again, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about, okay, how incompetent is the first order? You know, when I think of like, like the empire strikes back when Han Solo decides to turn the millennium Falcon around and uh, take on the star destroyer that was in hot pursuit of him. If you recall, it's you, you're the commander on the deck of, of the star destroyer was like, just absolutely in shock. He's like, he's turning around to attack this ship. You know, when he turns to it to his his cronies and says, shields up, you know, and Han Solo didn't actually shoot and attack the Star Destroyer. He went into more of a, a psych out mode where like he blasted by the bridge and then used his landing claw to be able to attach himself to the Star Destroyer. Very, very clever stuff. But again, it gave the, the reason why I'm I'm spending time on this is to talk about how by having scenes like that in Empire Strikes Back it communicates to us, the viewers, that what that this this ship is not to be trifled with. That if you're a lone gunman trying to take out a star destroyer, that just will not happen. It is it is completely outclassed. Well, excuse me, the Millennium Falcon or any kind of smaller ships are outclassed by this huge juggernaut known as a star destroyer. So when you th when you watch the scene of Poe taking on a freaking dreadnought, I'm just like, what? And I understand that there are other resistance fighters that are kind of flying around and whatnot, but when it came down to actually taking on that ship, there really weren't any other types of ships that were in there. Like you would see like when they were taking on the Death Star, for example, you had all kinds of squadrons that were shooting and attacking and that sort of thing. So anyway, moving right along here. So... Poe's reckless behavior acts as the catalyst for the slowest space chase in history, 
with Star Destroyers basically waiting for the Resistance cruisers to run out of fuel. So, <coughs> excuse me, I can tell that there are obvious parallels to this and the Death Star getting into position from A New Hope. However, this lacks the intense urgency of the former. When we're watching as <laughs> the ships were just in this slow motion chase, I mean, it, it was almost comical. I, I mean, this is something almost right out of um, Spaceballs where you're, you're just like, are they really doing this? They are doing this. Yes, they are. They <laughs> You're seeing these ships that are just kind of moseying along and, and we're supposed to be feeling the intensity of the, the situation. So again, it kind of made me raise an eyebrow like, why are we doing this? Not to mention the fact, again, and I don't want to like get too like tactical nerdy on you, but if the First Order realizes what the plan is of the Resistance to try and just keep going forward and, not, and they don't have enough fuel to actually go into light speed again, wouldn't it make sense to call in reinforcements of the First Order so that you'd have Star Destroyers or some other type of fleet appear on the other side so that way you just kind of flank them? I don't know. I mean, it's just, once again, these types of thoughts were entering my head as I was watching this film thinking, wait a minute, why, why aren't they doing this? Or why aren't they doing that? When in the past, typically in a star Wars film, that never happens. I'm always wondering what's going to happen next. And I'm just, wow. Like, like I can't believe the situations they've gotten themselves into. So anyway, there is that going on. And um, at one point there was an attack and this actually occurred um, right before they went into light speed. But you'll see the scene where you'll notice that Kylo Ren decided not to fire upon the ship that his mom was on and which I thought was interesting. I thought that was cool. That was a little nugget there of like, Ooh, okay. So he's, he's, he's not willing to take out his mother, but then his co-pilots actually continued to fire upon the bridge. And so it caused it to, to explode. And as a result, Leia got blasted into outer space. So I'm a bit conflicted on this part because on the one hand, it's like, okay, we are to understand that this trilogy takes place roughly about 30 years after the, the original trilogy, you know, with New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. So it's safe to assume that Luke Skywalker probably began to teach Leia about certain aspects of the force. And we can tell now from the force awakens and the last Jedi that she has not herself, you know, to our knowledge, become a Jedi in any sense. I think that she has just remained as a more political public figure, someone who is able to, to command the, the resistance and that sort of thing. And you need people like that. And unless that we see something in the, the third film, that's a big surprise where she all of a sudden brandishes a lightsaber. Um, <clears throat> I think that that's, it's safe to assume that she probably got some sort of peripheral training on things. And of course, you know, keeping the, the, the thought in the back of your minds too, that she is the offspring of Anakin Skywalker. So she you know, naturally has a lot of the, the force gifts. But anyway, she gets blasted in outer space. You see, you start to see her fly, um, freeze over due to obviously the, the the shift in temperature. But then, as she's she seemingly is unconscious and and basically dying in outer space, she's able to fly herself 
back to the ship and survive. I think that the execution, once again, concept, concept versus execution. In theory, this sounds cool. However, the way that they executed it was, it was just goofy. You know, just watching her kind of fly almost like, uh, what's that? That one Cirque du Soleil or whatever it is. It's the, the things you can watch in Vegas where they do a lot of those like um, acrobatic acts and stuff. It just came across as just kind of goofy. Not to mention the fact that how on earth was she able to, to actually physically survive that? I mean, we are led to believe that due to the bridge exploding, that caused her to go unconscious. So that automatically pushes out the argument about, oh, what if you're conscious and you get sucked out into space, but you have the force? You know, are you able to like somehow combat the sudden change in pressure, the sudden change in temperature, the, I mean, the, the, the sudden change in the fact that you have no oxygen. I mean, it just, I don't know. Like, like that was a large pill to swallow for me personally. I don't know what, what you all think. I'd love for you guys to be able to respond back, you know, on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. So I want to hear your thoughts on this, but Anyway, she survives, and but but as she gets back into the ship, then she's unconscious once again. So, I mean, what is this? Is this just kind of a, a primal response so that like that her body made? And somehow, even though she was unconscious, she was still able to steer herself back to the ship and get back on? I mean, really? Is, I, I'm, I just, I'm not buying it. So, we'll put that on the shelf for now. And we'll move on to the next part here which, that I have in my notes, which is that the casino planet was lame. It was completely uninspired. Uh, I just, I, I did not have a wow factor visiting this particular planet. There was nothing about it that was really memorable when they were walking through kind of the, the casino areas. It, it was just boring. I mean, it just, it did not, it was goofy too. Like just, I don't know it did not have the edginess. Like, like if you think back to star Wars, a new hope and you, you watch as, as they, as Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi walk into that bar, there's an edginess that's there. Now, granted that particular bar is a bit more of a dive bar as opposed to the high class casino -y vibe that they were going for. But still, nonetheless, Having that edginess there of, of just, you know, you're walking in with these characters to a place that they've never been before. They don't know what to expect. They're looking for someone. How do you go about creating a character within the environment so that there is a bit more of that edginess or that mystique to it? Or just the fact that it's not what like, 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 uh, it's not like you walked onto the set of the Muppets. You know, instead you're walking into a place where you're like, wow, okay, this is this is definitely different. So the other thing that I thought was a bit of, a, of an issue with regards to the plot was the fact that it was said that basically every guest is a weapons dealer. And I just don't buy that. The, the sheer number of people that are, were, were on this casino planet, there is no way that you would have that many people being weapons dealers that were doing that well. I mean, they were all high rollers. Now, I will say that I did love 
the concept of the weapons dealers. I did love the idea that Benicio del Toro's character DJ was talking about where he was actually showing one of the guests roster of weapons that he has sold both to the empire and to the resistance. That was super cool. I really did like that, but I did not appreciate how they just lumped everybody who's on this planet as being a weapons dealer. To me, that was, that was lazy storytelling. I think that that you that they could have approached it a bit differently from from that standpoint, but um. So let's talk about the fight between Finn and Captain Phasma. This is something that I had kind of alluded to early on when I was talking about the cast. So the fight itself, I'm just going to come out and say it. It was forgettable and clumsy. Phasma is is just a complete waste. You know, from a from a visual presentation perspective, she's a wannabe Boba Fett, but she's supreme. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, she she is so supremely useless, and in she doesn't have to be, but she just is. The way that they are going about telling this character story arc, it's laughable. I mean. I remember watching the first trailer of The Force Awakens and looking at this character and thinking to myself, wow, that is a really cool approach to having a decorated stormtrooper soldier, someone who obviously has a bit more abilities and chops than your typical stormtrooper. And both films, it's just ridiculous. There, there is absolutely no character development with her character. And then the fight, like I was actually looking forward to this where like, oh, okay, cool. We're going to have Finn taking on his, his former boss and it's going to be this, this big epic fight. And it really wasn't. It was just this, like I said, it, it just felt clumsy. And there were, there were no like wow moments during the, the melee exchange. And, and it just, you know, and at the end of the fight, Finn is able to to fracture Phasma's mask. And so you could see her eye as she like looks at him before she falls down to some sort of, you know, supposed fury death. And you could tell that they were going for that. Like, Oh, he, he damaged her helmet and look at how she's looking at him. She, you could see her eyeball. And it's just like, come on. Like, okay, that's, that doesn't work because the fight sequence that you just did sucked. <coughs> so, Again, I'm just I'm, I'm sitting there in, in the theater thinking, man, I really did expect them to be able to really give some TLC to Captain Phasma and be able to to explain why she, it just you know in the first movie it's like fine she she was she just wasn't a big part of the the overarching story but I, I don't know it's just bizarre to me what why they're treating her character the way they are but. Anyway, the next section that I want to analyze too is the fact that Ray got next to zero training from Luke. So you'll you'll notice that that you know she she gets to the um, this island that Luke is on, and that's where the Force Awakens ends. And it was a great cliffhanger, and we get here on the second film, and you know, she she's constantly trying to hit him up for training how she has this feeling inside she doesn't know what to do with it and she knows that he's a jedi master that that she wants him to to train her how to use the force well 
Luke has basically three Diet Coke lessons for her. And they're not like these big drawn out things. If, if you compare what Luke did with, with Ray in this film to Yoda training Luke in Empire Strikes Back, I mean, there was a considerable amount of time that was, t- that was dedicated toward him getting to know Yoda, but also the training that he was doing. I mean, like there, there were so many life lessons in that. And yet when we get to the last Jedi, how, how is she able to hold her own in fighting the first order based off of those three little basic things? And this, this goes back to one of my gripes about this current trilogy with, you know, specific regards to Ray. Ray's character from Force Awakens was too perfect. And this is something that I, I've, I talk to many friends about all the time, which is that if you look, if you were to compare Ray to Luke Skywalker, Luke Skywalker in the original trilogy with A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, he failed at basically everything. It didn't matter what he was trying to do. If he was trying to save his aunt and uncle, if he was trying to take on sand people, if he was trying to rescue Obi-Wan Kenobi, if he, you know, just, just whatever it is. I mean, with, with the, the, the little exceptions of like him being able to like take out the Death Star or he was able to use the force. He was, he basically failed at just about everything he did, whether it was like rescuing his friends in Empire Strikes Back. Um, I mean, just, just what have you, but that makes him a very relatable character to all moviegoers. Why? Because he's a flawed character and we as humans are all flawed. So therefore he's much more identifiable. Now, if you look at the character Ray, I mean, in, in the force awakens, I mean, she's able to take on like what three thugs on Jakku by herself. She's able to, to repel down by herself through the star destroyer to pick up parts. She's able to like fly a millennium Falcon that she's never flown before in her life. I mean, how is that even possible flying something as, as complex as that? She's able to grab a lightsaber using the force. I mean, that took Luke at least one film before he was able to do something like that. And then even then it, it was just ridiculous how she was able to actually do lightsaber attacking against Kylo Ren who had training. I mean, he had a considerable amount of training from Snoke. Not to mention Luke Skywalker from back in the Jedi Temple days. So again, I'm just like, okay, this character is invulnerable. I mean, she was able to do a Jedi mind trick on a stormtrooper for crying out loud in The Force Awakens. You're probably asking yourselves, well, Russ, why why are you getting um, amped up about this? Well, it's because it cheapens the experience. And I want, and I think that's one of the key words that I want you to take home from this podcast episode is the fact that it just, <clears throat> when you think of the force, you think of how it takes a certain level of skill. It takes a certain level of discipline and you, it's not something you learn overnight. And the fact that you have a character that has never had the formal training to be a Jedi or to like be able to harness the power of the force, suddenly be able to do all these things that typically, you know, it just, it just is not the case. Well, then it cheapens the force. It cheapens the, the gift of being able to wield the force. So anyway, um, 
I will say that during, you know, over the course of, of her being on the island and eventually finding out just <clears throat> why Luke was, was just very reluctant to be, to help her and, and go with her, that sort of thing. Um, I loved seeing the flashbacks to a younger Luke Skywalker. I thought those were absolutely fantastic. I mean, I, I don't want to come across as being a negative Nancy on this film because there were moments of brilliance on this and this was one of them. I absolutely adored the backstory of seeing Luke being younger and being at the Jedi temple, having that moment of conflict of what he should do about his nephew. That right there, that is Star Wars magic right there. And I wanted to see more. I wanted to see um, just, you know, who else he was teaching, who, you know, who were his other pupils from the Jedi temple? Did they all get murdered by Kylo Ren or did some escape? What exactly, what types of techniques, what was Luke training these, these students with, you know, like, like can we even see them putting together a lightsaber? These, these are all the, all kinds of different opportunities that once again, people, fans of star Wars want to see this. The ever since a new hope came out, you, you recall when Obi-Wan Kenobi is talking to Luke Skywalker and, and he's just, he's giving a lot of backstory about the more civilized age and before um, the big wars, which we now know are, are as the clone wars, you know, in fact, they even mentioned it, you know, when Luke says you fought in the clone wars, the, those were not even a direct um, effector of a new hope, but just the fact that that he was taking the time to be able to talk about other events that had transpired in this world that had, um, in essence, brought them to where they are today. People love that sort of thing, so it was great to see them do that once again with this, with regards to the uh, the Jedi Temple. But. Um, there was a scene where she inevitably goes down to kind of the, the dark place of the island where she felt kind of the, the dark side of the force. One of the things I was a little confused on was when she got down there, what was the point of race staring at a bajillion reflections of herself? I honestly, I, I wasn't sure what to make of that. I thought something was going to happen or someone was going to appear or, She'd have to fight a darker version of herself, kind of like how Luke did in Empire Strikes Back, but we didn't get any of that. And so I don't know if I need to watch the film a second time. I know I will just to be able to, you know, take it in again, just digest it over again. But again, I was, I was kind of a bewildered mess at that point. Just kind of like, what, 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 what was the point of that? What? <laughs> So another high point of the movie was the force connection of Ray and Kylo Ren. Once again, this was brilliant. I absolutely loved how they pushed forward with this whole notion that you can have people in the galaxy who have a natural connection to another person or being through the force. And I hope that they don't go down the same path like, like they did in the original trilogy where you have the brother and sister thing. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I really do hope that they keep it as 
these two complete strangers who just happen to have this strong connection to each other, you know, through the force that, that the force is acting as this conduit and allowing them to connect in that manner. I think that that was, was absolutely fantastic. I loved how they were able to see each other, how they were able to not necessarily make out just their surroundings, like where they were, but they were able to see each other period. <clears throat> So I also thought that what was another high point was that um, Yoda appearing to counsel Luke was just great. And once again, this was something that they were able to tap into with regards to the older films. And that is just relationships. Star Wars, you have to understand Star Wars is so based around family and relationships and it's and it's it's just and people say, well, yeah, no, I understand that, I get that. Well, I don't think everyone necessarily does, and I and you see it in this film with characters like Poe or Finn, who had next to zero character development in this film, or Captain Phasma. It's just I, really Kylo Ren and Rey were the two. Well, and actually, I, I will say Luke Skywalker. Those three characters really got a lot of TLC when it when it, it comes to enriching the relationships between each other and just being able to flesh out their character arcs. So yeah, I mean when I think of Yoda and I think of <clears throat> when he appeared as um, just that little ghostly form of his, which was great, Force Ghost. I did really love that a lot. I think that 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 was probably one of my favorite parts of the entire movie. I will say though, that I think that Yoda was cackling a little too much. I was kind of surprised at just how much he was laughing given the, the dire circumstances. It was just, it was a little too much. It would have been nice if they dialed it back by 20% or something. But, um, you know, one of the big things too about that that scene was the fact that Yoda was actually able to interfere with the real world, and that immediately shot me back to Obi Wan Kenobi and Empire Strikes Back when he's warning Luke not to go face Darth Vader that he would not be able to interfere. So I, I am curious to find out more information about that. Like, was Obi Wan doing that in such a way to make sure that Luke could prove his worthiness as a Jedi, or was there some sort of actual um, barrier that was there that because Obi-Wan had died, he was not able to interfere with the living. Yoda, however, would suggest that there is a possibility of being able to interfere with the living world. So it's, it's, it's definitely worth discussing. I'd love to, to hear what you guys have to say about that as well, because I, I was not expecting that at all to, to happen where Yoda all of a sudden summons lightning to come down and, and strike the tree. So speaking of the tree too, this is, this is one of the, the, the parts I'm talking about with regarding um, concept versus execution and just the, the, the glossing over of, of, of certain scenes. So we discover that there is this ancient tree that's on this island and within the tree itself, you see that it contains these ancient Jedi books. This is huge because if you think of Star Wars and all of the films, not once 
do you see a book? This is a universe that was intentionally bookless. Everything that they ever looked at was, was some sort of futuristic sci-fi tablet of some kind or, or archives or whatever it is, but you never saw a book. And so this is a very big deal in terms of the Star Wars lore because up until this point, it was just kind of a foregone conclusion that there were no books, that, that, that people did not use pen and paper to write stuff down. So when we get to it, what happens? Well, there weren't any details on the books. We just saw them there and that was it. Like you saw like, like a brief moment where someone was kind of rubbing nostalgically on one of the pages. But I mean, are you for real? Like we don't see any diagrams. We don't see any kind of, of tutelage or wisdom coming from it. Even Yoda admitted that, yes, there, there, there is wisdom to be found in those books. But come on. I mean, like, why, why show that and then not actually have anything in there? And I don't know if, if they're trying to just build mystique around it. Like, just they don't want to have to explain everything in, in the, the world of Star Wars or the Force. And while there is merit to that, you know, we don't want to go down the, the, the route of midi-chlorians. That was terrible. However, when you have something that is that important as as just discovering that that you know books do in fact exist that previously books never existed in the world of Star Wars you have to be able to sit down and be able to provide some of of what it what it has to say in there and it wasn't just like one book you had i mean he had like like you know at least a <laughs> an IKEA row there of of books to to look over even if we never were, were spoon-fed the information of what the books contained, you never even saw Ray sitting by herself reading the books. I mean, it was like the scene where like she's in there, she sees it, <clears throat> Luke's in there and talks about how the, the Jedi are going to die. He walks out. He really could care less if she reads them or not. And there are several scenes where we see her spending the night outside of his hut or she's practicing with her little staff and stuff. Why weren't there any scenes of her just sitting there reading the books? Why wasn't there a scene with her building her first lightsaber? These, these are, 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 are just standard questions that, that are vital to becoming a Jedi. I mean, <clears throat> depending on how much of a, of a star Wars nerd you are, uh, we, have found out that part of your journey into becoming, <clears throat> excuse me, a Jedi is that you actually learn how to create your own lightsaber. This was a horribly missed opportunity for the filmmakers to be able to put that in for Rake. I think someone, a character like Rake, oh man, that would have been so cool. So anyway, let's uh, move forward on this. So, um, we get to the scene where, where Ray, you know, she, she finally leaves the Island cause she feels compelled to have to leave and she has to go because the, the resistance needs her and that sort of thing. And Luke stays behind. <clears throat> One of the things I found to be interesting about this is I also, once again, 
found myself comparing this to Empire Strikes Back, which I think you almost find yourself doing because there are a lot of strong parallels to Empire Strikes Back with this film, just like The Force Awakens was basically a remake of A New Hope. I mean, if you look at it, it is very similar. <coughs> it's undeniable to, to look at that and think to yourself, yeah, it wasn't like there were no strong parallels to those two movies. But when I, when I thought of The Last Jedi where she's, going back to, to join the resistance versus empire strikes back, you know, in empire strikes back, Luke is still in Dagobah being trained by Yoda and Darth Vader is being very clever in the sense that, you know, he's, he's obsessed with trying to find Skywalker. He wants to be able to, to be able to capture him. And so one of the things that he decides to do is to, capture his most closest friends and then torture them knowing that Luke has a very good chance of feeling their pain, thus compelling Luke to have to leave the island and I'm, I'm sorry, not, not <laughs> I'm getting messed up, compelling Luke to leave Dagobah and then go and rescue their friends. It's a, it's a very strong conviction that he has where he knows he, he realizes that his training is not finished and that he could be put into harm's way with regards to Darth Vader because Darth Vader is, you know, he's a Sith Lord, but he, but he doesn't want his friends to die. Now, if you compare that to what Ray did, Ray basically just kind of gave up on Luke because she knew that that time was running out to be able to try and help the resistance. And so she left while that is a reason to leave I want you to just, just, you know, if you focus on those two different scenarios, you'll notice that there is um, a much more compelling reason to leave an Empire Strikes Back versus this one here where she basically just kind of gave up on Luke and said, okay, well, I don't need more time. I'm going to have to go try and take care of this myself. So she leaves. And I do like, I do appreciate the fact that Luke due to the bad experiences with the Jedi temple and with Kylo Ren specifically, you know, he's very reluctant to be able to help out. He's almost kind of bitter as he realizes that there's more to the force than just the Jedi and the Sith and how there's kind of this gray area, that sort of thing. And, and, and I really do, I do like that a lot, but again, concept versus execution. So we get to the scene where, you know, Ray basically gets to the ship. She's captured by Snoke's cronies and Snoke begins to interrogate Ray. Now, I love the idea of a Sith whose approach to the Force is attacking through the mind. You know, I really did appreciate watching as he would like kind of, you know, lift her up using the Force and float her and, you know, almost drag her to him and then push her away and, and that sort of thing. I mean, very, very cool lead up. <clears throat> um, but the problem is, is that Snoke died way too early. This is where, and this, this is a, a prime example of the other part of what I was talking about at the beginning, which is instant gratification. You have a character like Snoke who everybody wants to know his backstory on or just more character development. And if you think about characters of his caliber, typically they last at least two films. 
you know, like, like if you think of Darth Vader, Darth Vader was in all three films. If you think of the emperor, not counting the prequels, but just in the original trilogy, he was in two of those films. So it's, it's just, it's important to be able to just build upon that antagonist, build upon what that an antagonist's motives are, what their, their beef with the world is. And, and I mean, really, if you think about Snoke himself, he was basically in the film for maybe 10 minutes out of a two and a half hour long movie. You mean to tell me he was only in the film? He had 10 minutes of screen time. And he's he's a fascinating character because I want to know how he got the scars on his face. Why did he become a Sith in the first place? What planet does he come from? What exactly was his relationship to Darth Sidious or Darth Vader? It's, it's obvious that he's been around long enough to know who these people are. Was he initially part of the, the Rebel Alliance and then you know, was left for dead somewhere and turned? You know, th- there are all these unanswered questions. And the, the death scene itself was awesome. Like, like, I really did love how he died. But I wanted that scene to be postponed until the third film. Because that would have been, you know, it would have it would have offered much more time to be able to see how Ray was completely unmatched. Well not, well, not unmatched. She was unfit to fight up against Snoke, and we and we would be able to also learn more about Snoke's abilities. We'd be able to learn more about um, just what his interest is with her, and not to mention the fact that you know if we talk about plot what kind of opportunities come up from a storytelling perspective? You know, I'm just going to spitball this particular idea out there, but what if, and I'm just saying, what if, okay, for the sake of argument, what if Snoke is able to, you know, he's torturing Ray and he's able to corrupt her mind. And meanwhile, Kylo Ren all of a sudden redeems himself and so the two characters find themselves on opposite ends of the force where suddenly Ray realizes that the only real like truth of being, um, uh, you know, alive in her place in this universe and, and how to utilize the force is to be by Snoke's side. And so you have this crisscross of light and dark all of a sudden becoming dark and light. I'm just throwing that out there. Like, how cool would that be? So anyway, we don't get to see any of that. Um, I, I personally, you know, not, not to sound like a sadist or anything like that, but I wanted to see Ray suffer more. You know, we see her kind of levitating and he's doing something that's causing a lot of shaking and tremoring with her. And you could tell she's in pain and stuff. But again, this is a Sith Lord whose speciality is in mind warfare through the force. I wanted to see hallucinations. I wanted, I wanted to see how he would attempt to break her resolve. And we just didn't see that. It was over too quickly. It was that instant gratification of like, well, I want to see someone die. I want to, I want to see a Sith Lord go down or whatever. And it was just like, golly, man, you, you, you couldn't have waited a while. I mean, I, we, we just met the guy and he's actually an interesting character. I want to get to know him. You know, if, <laughs> It kind of reminds me a little bit of Darth Maul. Here you have just one of the coolest 
most interesting villains ever in cinema. You only see him on screen for maybe 15 minutes and he dies at the end of it. There's, there's no returning, uh, in, in, um, Star Wars Attack of the Clones or in in the third film either. I mean, like he's just dead at the end of it. And you're just like, man, that's just, <laughs> why would you do that? Like, I don't know. Like, it's just bizarre to me. And anyway, going back to Snoke. Um, yeah, I mean, we just learned nothing about him or any backstory as to how he started teaching Kylo Ren. I mean, the, the, it just ended up dying. Now, again, you have to separate the fact that the way he died was fantastic. And the scene after that, where all of a sudden you're seeing a Sith and, you know, a quasi Jedi, basically a, a person of light and a person of dark fighting side by side. Absolutely epic. Very, very cool. But you have to separate that versus when you show that. And this is one of the, the key milestones of movie making is you dole it out. You have to dole the, these different points out. You can't just have a McDonald's, you know, happy meal, fast food, instant gratification. You need to let that food marinate. You need to let that food, not, not McDonald's food, <laughs> but let's say you, you went and you, you went to the, the grocery store and you got, you know, <clears throat> USD prime filet mignons. And you're marinating. You, not only are you marinating, you had to put together all the ingredients for the marinade. And then you're letting those filet mignons marinate for 24 hours. And then you're pulling it out. And then you're also putting some, some extra goodies on the grill. And you're getting the grill prepared. And then you have those filets on there. And you don't put the fire on maximum. You would do a nice slow burn. And not only that, when the steaks are ready, you know, you, you take those, those steaks off the grill, they're sizzling, they're looking great. And, and you've been, uh, you know, basting it with some kind of mopping sauce that you've put together. And then you, you know, you put some sauteed mushrooms and grilled onions on top of that. I mean, you see where I'm going with this. We're like, by the time you bite into that, you are in hog heaven. You cannot believe the explosion of flavor that you're tasting. And it was so worth it because of the prepping involved. Now I'm hungry. Anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, it, like I said, it was awesome seeing the light and dark fighting side by side. Um, one of the other things that's worth mentioning too is I loved seeing Snoke's personal guard attack. I've always wondered like what their fighting style is going back to the original trilogy when you saw the Emperor's personal guard and those awesome red outfits. And so it was great to see them actually go toe to toe with these, these lightsabering, lightsabering, lightsaber dueling characters and how they were really, I mean, by all intents, they were, they were able to hold their own very well. I felt like, so yeah, once again, that whole sequence was fantastic. I just felt like, like it was too soon that that should have been pushed to the third film. And that would have given us more of, of an opportunity to be able to learn more about these characters and also learn about the consequences of their actions. Going back to the original trilogy with Luke Skywalker, for instance, there were consequences to him leaving before his training was finished. And I like that because that creates gravity of the situation. 
you know, he goes, he's completely unmatched when it comes to, um, or not unmatched, but outmatched to Darth Vader. Not only does he find out that Darth Vader is his father, but he also loses a hand in the process. I mean, the guy is beaten down. He's absolutely just outmatched bar none. And as a result, as a viewer, that really resonates because it's like, wow, like he should have heeded Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda's heatings to, to finish the training first. Well, in this one, you don't really have any of that. There, what, what are the consequences? All that happens is that Snoke dies. They're able to get through the guards. And then it, it propels the narrative of suddenly them having a moment where Kylo Ren is trying to get Rey to join him. But again, it's not based on anything. Like where we still have no idea why Kylo Ren is the way he is, other than the fact that he had a bad experience with his uncle. And there may be a little bit of like, like, you know, his parents were kind of dysfunctional. Like it's a dysfunctional family, right? However, I just I can't help but think that there there's more to it. Like what what else is driving him to be the way that he is. We haven't been given that yet. So anyway, we get on to the fact that going back to the resistance. So Leia is unconscious. And as a result, we have the purple hair lady who has um, taken over in the interim. There are several things about this that I have issues with. First and foremost, why did she keep her escape plan secret? When you think about every plan in Star Wars, it's talked about ahead of time. I mean, why was that? I understand that they were trying to create drama with Poe in the sense that Poe has a way of doing things. And there are other people who have a different view on how things should be handled. But again, it just made no sense to me. It's just like, why would you approach it that way? Also, another issue I had too was was her um, staying behind on the ship. You know, like when, when the when the grand plan is finally uncovered, that it's to just get everybody on the transport ships and go to the plant that's right next to them. I mean, really, like, like, like the first order wouldn't have anticipated that. Like, oh, hey, look, there's a plan over there. Maybe we should, you know, it, once again, it's too simple. It's too just uninspired. Like how, how on earth, like, I, I just don't get it. How, how like, what, why was that worth keeping a secret for? And her staying behind on the ship just made absolutely no sense because in, in the world of Star Wars, you have amazing technology. You have ships that are able to go light speed. You have droids who are able to just do all sorts of different maintenance and, and communications and everything else. You mean to tell me that there is no autopilot or remote control that she could have done from a transport ship? Like if she were to get on a transport ship, she couldn't have just caused it to keep going the trajectory that, that it's going. <coughs> so... You know, it, it, it would make sense like if you're, if you're watching a, um, a pirate movie and a captain goes down with his ship or her ship, whatever. Like, that makes sense because it's a pirate movie. Like, they're, they're operating on a ship that is on the ocean. There is no autopilot whatsoever. 
Chances are that's just going to happen, but not in Star Wars. It makes no sense. Now, if I were to put on my creative director hat or even my, my script writing hat, creative storytelling, how about that? If there was something that got damaged on the ship, let's say, for instance, the First Order, you know, that they will <clears throat> intermittently fire some turbo lasers at them and one of them gets through the shield and as a result takes out the, the navigation system. Okay, now, now I'm getting there. Now I can see why she would need to stay behind. And as a result, that would also cause me to think more about her character in a way that... I don't know. It just has more of a lasting impact as opposed to what we saw here. I mean, it was almost like, oh, well, we need to showcase a, a character who's female as um, a way to differentiate from the, the standard cliche of a man going, you know, man captain going down with a ship. Let's have a female going down. And it's just like, no, like, like fine. If you want to go down that route, but you have to have the utility, the, 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 you have to have the, the forethought to be able to set it up in such a way that the action itself makes sense. So, <laughs> it's just, I don't know, I found myself just being in there in the theater and, and just just scratching my head at all these different parts thinking, what? Now, I will say, okay, the, the whole idea of her turning the cruiser around and going into light speed that just careened into a significant portion of the first order fleet. That was awesome. My question is why couldn't that have been the secret plan? That's my big thing is like, you know, she, that was not part of the original plan. She had to go about doing that. And, and by doing so you realize she has complete control over that ship by just sitting at one cockpit. Like there, there was like one little kiosk, chair thing that she sat at and was able to, to move the ship around. So, you know, once again, why didn't she have a remote control? Why couldn't she have controlled that from, from the transport ship? Now here's the other thing too. Keep it, keep, you know, just, just, just stay with me on this. Let's say she is on the transport ship with princess Leia. She's able to control the ship as it is. And the overall plan actually is not limited to just getting the people on the transport ships and going down to the planet. But the plan also entails her turning the ship around and doing that light speed thing. That would have been awesome because, A, that's a fantastic plan that no one would have seen coming. And B, now we have an opportunity to get to know this character as the purple-haired lady. I mean, like, like we get to find out, what is her relationship to Leia? Why wasn't she in The Force Awakens? What is the character development that we can now have an opportunity to flesh out with this character so now... I can get behind her and root for her as opposed to, well, okay, she's a purple haired lady and she's tough as nails. It's kind of like, okay, that's one dimensional. What, what else can you give me on this character? But yeah, I, I gotta say the cruiser going into light speed and cutting through the, 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 uh, the first order ships. That was awesome. Speaking of no character development, Finn and Poe, <laughs> you, there, it was basically non-existent. I mean, they, they were just kind of going through the motions, and there just really was not a lot there. I mean, like Finn was just kind of floundering about. There, there really, I mean, really, the, the the one scene 
where I thought, okay, this is getting interesting was when he was back on the ship and he had to fight his old boss. But then I've already talked about how forgettable that was. It didn't have the payoff I was looking for. And with Poe, all we ever saw was just, you know, Poe is one of those aggressive type of get him, get her done shooter type of guys. Okay. We got that. What else do you have? If you compare once again, you know, I, I could totally hear some of you saying, well, you're being, you're being overly critical, Russ. Like, like, like what, what more do you want? Well, again, I'm looking at the original casting of star Wars where you have Han Solo and Chewbacca, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Lando Calrissian. You have all these different characters that just really, oh, there's so much there. So much. And I'm just not seeing that to the full effect with these with these um, new generation of characters. But um, anyway, the ground battle, again, was a snore fest. <laughs> you have the, the resistance that gets down to this planet that looks an awful lot like Hoth, except we learn that it's, it's actually salt, which, you know, it's a bit different. It's like, okay, I can get there. But, um, <laughs> you know, you have a ground force that comes down. The resistance fighters find the most bizarre looking ships in the hangar that they're all flying. Of course, I'm looking at a lot of them thinking you have no formal train. Once again, there's no formal training. How on earth do you know how to fly these things, let alone fly it in a way that you're able to actually be of use in trying to stall the empire or in this case, the first order. I mean, it's just what, you know, and there, there's a scene where, where Finn is struggling with it. And, and all of a sudden he magically gets control of how to do it. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, every type of ship is not just plug and play. Like you, there are <laughs> all kinds of buttons and, and, fluctuators and just stabilizers, all kinds of things in there. And once again, what was the point of those ships? Like why would they even have those ships in the, the hangar in the first place? So once again, comparing it to Hoth, you know, you have the snow speeders in Hoth, you have the buildup of the ATATs, you know, the Imperial walkers when they land and they're lumbering their way to the, <clears throat> the, the rebel Alliance. And, you know, they have a goal of taking out the power generator. Well, while that happens, we see just, just what the, the ATATs are capable of. We see what the rebels have to do in order to adapt to the situation and then take out the ATATs with harpoon cables, right? We don't see anything happen with these updated ATATs. I mean, you see this brand new technology that we haven't seen before what about it? What about them have that have they made improvements to in such a way that makes them even more dreadful to fight against? We don't see anything happen. All we see are these abstract funky vehicles that they're all driving just in a completely straight line. And somehow the first order is completely incapable of just gunning all these down easy peasy. I mean, <laughs> really? So, yeah, I don't know. I, 
looking at that, that, that was just another squandered opportunity. <clears throat> so we get to the scene where almost all hope is lost, as it inevitably is. And we see that Luke suddenly appears within the resistance base. And it's, you know, we see this, the, the scene where he's walking out to face the first order, which that was super cool. Just being able to see him coming out. I'm thinking, Oh man, now it's getting real. What's going to happen as he's the only one who's going to take out this ground force. <clears throat> I thought it was it was fantastic the way <laughs> Kylo Ren just says, I want you to fire everything you have at that man. Like I, that was hands down one of the best lines in the entire movie. And seeing all of these like lasers going toward Luke and just you can't see him anymore. I mean, and I love how the the captain or the general, whatever his name is, um, <laughs> he's like that is enough. You think you got him? Are you sure? You know, like it was just, it was just the funniest thing. And then seeing him survive it, I mean, the, the entire theater erupted in hoops and hollers and stuff. And so, yeah, I, I was right there. I was like, yeah, okay, this is, this is good. Where, where are we going with this? Um, and, and even like with Kylo Ren coming down to face him, I liked the idea that Kylo Ren was actually nervous and it's it's a bit of a trade up in the, from the sense that traditionally speaking in Star Wars, you always have the Jedi or the up and coming Jedi being afraid of the Sith Lord, but we've never really seen the tables turned in such a way where suddenly you have a Jedi Master, and he's squaring off against someone who's basically maybe a little bit farther along than than the Sith equivalent of a Padawan. So I like that and I dig it. I wanted to see more of that. But my question is, is why did Luke have to die? I understand that what, you know, and again, I love the idea that he was using the force to just force project himself on that planet. That was big. That, that was, that was such a neat idea. And it showcases just how much Luke's powers have expanded. And I like, you know, so, okay, so the argument of um, the fact that, that, that he had to use and exert so much of himself in order for that to be um, a, a success cost him in the end to just be, um, have to, to pass on. I... While I do like the concept of that, I do not care for the execution. Luke Skywalker is one of the linchpins of the Star Wars mythos. This is a guy who, you know, we have seen do some amazing things, but we've never seen him be at a Jedi Master status. And I find it hard... It's a hard pill to swallow that he sacrificed himself so that the scenario of the resistance escaping, it just, it didn't fit the character of Luke Skywalker. Like, like why would you have a, a character as important as Luke pass on <clears throat> after he, all, all he really did was just stall the, the first order so that the resistance could escape and continue on their, their running path. You know, we've seen Luke 
stall and, and do stuff against the Galactic Empire to help the Rebel Alliance get away. We've seen that before and he survives. And I just, I feel like that was not the right course of action to take for the character. A character as important as that, I wanted to see more. I wanted to see Luke be able to return back into the third film. And once again, it's that instant gratification thing. It's like, why why is it that, that every time we have someone who's a Jedi Master, they have to croak? Why do they have to die? Why can't we have a Jedi Master who's just extremely powerful, is very good at what they do, and is able to survive some sort of attack. Like why is it that every time we see some sort of lightsaber duel, there is an ultimatum in there that talks about how someone has to die. <clears throat> now granted Yoda didn't die. I mean, okay, fine. Yoda, when he was facing off against Darth Sidious, he didn't die. He was able to escape. But again, I want to see the tables turn fully where the Jedi master is completely in a class of their own and it causes a Sith to flee in terror. I want to see that. And we just, we just have not been given the, the opportunity for that yet, but yeah, just going back to the fact that, that Luke had to pass on. Um, I'm conflicted because I, I do like how they set that up, but I just, I, again, I feel like it was the wrong time. It would have been nice to have seen that perhaps in the third film, as opposed to the second, um, but also to just what, what was the feat? You know, what, what was the purpose that Luke decided to give his all for, you know, and I go, I go back and forth on that. One of the themes that this film explores is how fluid good versus evil is. And you see this talked about, um, by DJ and Luke primarily. And this is one of the film's stronger points with, with regards to the plot is just being able to, to dive and drill down a bit deeper into the force. What is the force? How exactly does it work? And, and really, um, is there really a black and white version of the force versus just how you manipulate it? And, and as Obi-Wan Kenobi said, very famously, you will find that many truths are based on a certain point of view. <clears throat> so I'm glad that they were able to, to um, expand upon that and, and push forward with it. One of the things that um, I think is worth noting is with regards to plot, I highly encourage you all to go check out the cinematics for Star Wars, the old Republic that was created by blur studios. You can go onto YouTube, just do a search for Star Wars, old Republic blur studio. And they made about three or four short films that were all, you know, it's all pre-rendered cinematics, it's all graphics, you know, CGI. The storytelling of these, of these, these movies are absolutely fantastic. Um, you have a short film that deals with kind of a mother slash guardian figure and this little girl who maybe is her daughter, or perhaps it's just a, a, a girl who she is, who this, this older woman is charged with looking after. Um, <clears throat> it explores, um, the Jedi and Sith relationships. 
Um, you have another film that they did with the uh, twin brothers trying to please this father figure. And, and um, it's just it, definitely check those out. I mean, to not spoil, well, I'll be spoiling it a bit just in, in this, this particular uh, monologue here. But so with the mother daughter thing, it was fantastic because here you have a cinematic that's about five minutes long, give or take. And within this cinematic, there is this girl who clearly has the potential to use the force. And she, you could tell that she's enamored with um, some of the other students who are a bit older than she is, who are training and that sort of thing. But you could tell that she has a bit of a, a problem controlling herself when, as it applies to the force, that she is um, letting a bit more of her emotions get the better of herself. And you see this in small instances, and you, you could tell that the female guardian, we'll just, we'll just call her the mother for now, <clears throat> you could tell that her mom is noticing these things, and she is kind of concerned, but she wants her, her to, um, daughter or whoever this girl is that she's charged with um, to be able to control it to be able to be trained in such a way so that, that, um, you know, it can be a, let's call it a productive <laughs> exercise in, in putting it to good use. How about that? So anyway, you see as this girl gets a little bit older and that sort of thing, and, and, and she's, getting her training on and she's getting frustrated because she's not able to do certain things as well as she would like. And so then she starts to use the force and anyway, not have, not getting stuck too far on this. You watch as this whole thing happens where this little girl suddenly gets into the, the care of um, these evil doers. And as a result, she, uh, um, all of a sudden gets trained more into the dark side and she tries to do this, this daring rescue because she realizes, you know, after having a vision that this girl that, that was once this, this wonderful person is now in danger of just losing herself uh, to the dark side of the force. And in the cinematic, you see how she, she makes this daring rescue. She's able to, to pull the girl out and she's almost able to get her to safety. But um, you know, of course the, the, uh, the evil ones are, are trying to stop her. And the biggest thing about it is, is that towards the end, you'll, you'll realize that um, she ends up having to fight this girl now as a young woman. Well, well, the mom is not a young woman, but the daughter, the young girl is now a, a young woman and she is absolutely a Sith Lord. So <clears throat> I'm not doing a very good job of, of explaining it, but I highly encourage you to go check that out and go check out the one with the twin brothers because in it, the exposition is so well done. You are absolutely floored by the end of each one of those cinematics because of the approach they've taken with developing these characters in a very short time frame. And, and also just, just showcasing the consequences and gravity of certain decisions that are made. And, I, and I, I say that because I feel like this is what Disney and Lucasfilm in particular with Kathleen Kennedy, they need to take a look at what Blur Studio did with those cinematics because a lot of what they did is pure gold in terms of what they need to do to be able to um, enhance the plot that they're, that they are doing with this current trilogy. 
Anyway, I think we've we've uh, hit enough on the plot. Let's move on to script. So I thought that the script uh, actually um, was pretty enjoyable. Um, I enjoyed the humor. I thought that Poe um, joking at the beginning with the whole, like, I'm still holding, are you there? Against the First Order. I thought that was really funny. Um, I think that Luke being facetious with the twig, you know, while, while Ray had her eyes closed and saying, do you feel the force? Do you feel that? You feel that? That's not the force. You know, and he, he twaps her with the twig. <clears throat> I thought that was <laughs> really well done. Also too, just, um, the, the, the continuation of Ray being on the Island, handing Luke his lightsaber and Luke looking at it and just tossing it over his shoulder, over the cliff. <laughs> um, there were there were several sequences like that throughout the film that I thought um, were really cool. Like they, they just they were unexpected, and it did bring some levity to the films. Where like if you if you were to think back to once again the original trilogy, there were a fair amount of of jokes in that same manner. So I'm glad that they were able to continue on with that. <clears throat> so yeah, I I actually thought that overall the um the script itself and the dialogue was very well written. The cinematography and special effects. If I remember correctly, there were only three locales in this film. There was of course space. You have the casino planet and the Island at, um, well, okay. Maybe there's four locales. Let's see. There's space. There's a casino planet. There's the Island. And then the salt planet that looked a lot like Hoth. Um, I think one of the epiphanies that I had as I was watching this film is typically Star Wars with each film finds a new planet or a new battleground, if you will, to um, try and have fun with. So if you think of like, like a, a new hope, for instance, you had the desert palette of Tatooine and then you have um, <clears throat> the Death Star in space. You had the forest of Endor. I'm sorry, not Endor. It was um, Yavin. And then in the second film, we go to the the ice planet of Hoth. So very, very different. And then you also have the Dagobah system and you have Cloud City. And then you're, once again, you're also in space with the asteroid fields. And um, even being on um, uh, the, the Star Destroyers, you know, there, there was a, a lot of that going on. And then Return of the Jedi, of course, you have the forest moon of Endor. You have the return of the Dagobah. And even in the prequels too, the prequels did a really good job of introducing new planets like Naboo. You're actually able to go to Coruscant. Um, th th there were a lot of, of those types of, of venues. <clears throat> I think for me, there was a missed opportunity in this case. In this particular movie, I would have really liked, like, let, let's say instead of the salt planet, I would have really liked to have seen um, them take an opportunity to show off a new battle scenario where it's an underwater battle against the First Order. Just think about what sort of new tactics or new wildlife or new vehicles from both the Resistance and the First Order we would be able to see in that type of scenario. We've never seen some sort of large scale battle take place underwater. Now we've been in attack of the clones 
you know, we did go to um, a planet that was mostly water, but we never actually had any kind of fighting under the water. So that would have been, um, I think, just just a terrific opportunity to be able to um, unleash some brand new ideas as opposed to rehashing some of the old stuff like ATATs that just get kind of a cosmetic upgrade. <clears throat> Other than that, though, I think that the cinematography itself, as a general rule, it, you know, it's just gorgeous. Everything was gorgeous. Everything was very well lit. Uh, I mean, it, it just it screams Star Wars. Star Wars is one of the most colorful um, universes ever, and it's it's always a feast for the eyes. That that is one of the strongest suits. I do think, though. Um, you know, moving away a bit from cinematography and going more into special effects. I do think that all of the new alien species were pretty lame and uninspired. I mean, the scenes with Chewbacca befriending the, the same creature he was eating was stupid. That, 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 that little creature with the huge eyes. I mean, it was just, I don't want to see creatures. Once again, it's that browbeating thing of like, Oh, we have to have the cutest creature in the world. Let's put him in right here and have him be buddy uh, buddy with Chewbacca. I mean, it's just really why are we do? It's goofy. Why are we doing this? So, and then you had some of the other other creatures like the the crystal foxes. I'm like, no, I don't. I'm not. I'm not feeling it. I'm just not. And then you had some of those other beasts too. Uh, from the casino planet. And, and once again, it's just, you know, the, their faces are just this cutesy, rootsy little creature faces. You know, I'm just like, okay, what happened to like the ferocity? You know, when you think of, of other creatures from Star Wars, like like if you think of A New Hope, for instance, when he walks in to um, like that, the, the uh, Moss Eisley spaceport and he walks into that, that dive bar of a place Granted, those were not just animals. They, they were different aliens. But still, I mean, it's like, why does everything have to look so darn cute all the time? Like, why, why can't we have, I don't know. <laughs> it just, it was too fantasy. Let's just put it that way. I mean, it, it just, I don't know. It, why? <clears throat> and actually... Now that I'm I'm kind of I'm I'm in this diatribe of of talking about the creatures and stuff, I have another question. Where are the new intelligent alien species? If you think about the casino planet, for instance, it was like 90% human. Like there are all these people walking around, and I'm thinking this was a com- a complete waste of space. I mean, there could have been other types of, of bonafide new alien species that we haven't seen before. I mean, th- this is a galaxy. Where are they? So anyway, moving on from that to soundtrack, um, you know, John Williams is back and I love me some John Williams. John Williams is hands down my favorite movie composer. Um, However, uh, most of what he scores is once again too abstract compared to the wonderful opus he composed for the original trilogy and even the prequel trilogy. And um, just so you know, I read that director Ryan Johnson had John Williams score the movie without the edited movie footage and then send it over to Ryan for him to edit 
into The Last Jedi. If that is true, that is a big no-no in my opinion. Because if you think about it, traditionally speaking, when you have a film that needs to be scored, the film itself, all the principal photography, the editing, is basically 99% done. And they project it onto a screen for the orchestra to be able to play again. So that way the composer knows just, you know, how they want to introduce more of the, the audio emotionality into each and every scene. So it makes sense then that when I, when I was listening to the soundtrack itself, I'm thinking, why is this? It just doesn't have kind of that, that masterful rapper that, that normally you, you would associate with a John Williams soundtrack. There's just, you know, when you think of a, of a classic star Wars movie, you, 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 you think of like how he has Luke's theme and Leia's theme and Yoda's theme and, and the overall Star Wars theme and just the, you know, <clears throat> Darth Sidious's theme and Darth Vader's theme. I mean, you have so many different tracks that are instantly recognizable and you just didn't have that. Now, you did have moments in the music where all of a sudden he harkens back to one of the... Um, melodies from the original trilogy and you're like, oh yeah, now that's what I'm talking about. But why am I finding myself saying that? Why am I saying, oh yeah, okay, here we go. Here we go. You know, it's like, oh, that's why. So again, that, that was a bit problematic. Um, and it's unfortunate because someone like John Williams, <laughs> you just, just let him do his thing, man. Just let him do his thing. So, um, Moving on to costumes, I want to take a moment to discuss the visual aesthetic um, of the uh, Resistance bombers from uh, the, the, the first part of the film and their crew. If you ever watched Tropic Thunder with Ben Stiller and Robert Downey Jr., there's a scene where Downey schools Stiller on the idea that you can never go full retard. It's, it's a great scene. It's a great line. He was talking about how Ben Stiller's character went too far with playing a special needs character that was supposed to be like Forrest Gump or Rain Man. This is the case with the bombers. You see, George Lucas drew inspiration from World War II footage of the Air Force and implemented it into his wardrobe and ship designs for the original trilogy of Star Wars. But he did so in a way that registers on a viewer's subconscious level. He achieved this by taking elements and applying them to, to a different design. It wasn't like he took exactly what they had and just applied it to his movie. He took little elements of it and then, you know, kind of um, kit bashed in a way with what he wanted to go with. So you, you'd get hints of it, but it wasn't directly that. <clears throat> if you fast forward to The Last Jedi... The guns on the bombers were directly cut and pasted from the B-52 bomber guns um, of the Flying Fortresses from World War II. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in the theater looking at it. I'm thinking, that is straight out of World War II. There, there is no difference. Like, what are they thinking? What are they doing? And also, the outfits were pretty much World War II flight suits. I mean, if you watch... Um, the different people who were, who were manning the bombers and, and watching them run around and doing their thing, I'm thinking, why does that look just like World War II? Well, because it basically was. Like, I just, 
again, never go full retard. Let's, I'll just leave it at that. Now, I will say, to be fair, that the other costumes in the film were great. They fit very well within the Star Wars universe. That There was a lot to like there. And so kudos to the, the, the folks who were in charge of costume design and wardrobe. Um, <clears throat> but again, I just you have certain certain parts where <laughs> you're, just, you're like, what the heck are you thinking? So yeah, um, I've had a lot to say about this. Um, in conclusion, once again, you cannot have instant gratification in a world as, as rich as Star Wars. You have to be able to dole out the information, dole out the experiences. And it's imperative to take the time to build up your character arcs. Otherwise, the audience doesn't care what happens to them. I mean, that's the biggest thing is, is that with, with the majority of the characters that we saw, certain things would happen or not happen. And I just found myself just th thinking, eh, okay. I, I didn't have any sense of loss or dread or whatever. It's just important. And I think that... Um, <clears throat> There were too many things that were on a peripheral surface level, such as the Jedi books, Snoke's backstory, or lack thereof, uh, the purple hair lady, the ground assault, Ray's Jedi training, or, or just what would pass as, I guess, Jedi training. You, you, you have all in these different instances where there were no deep dives. There, was, there, there, there wasn't enough time taken to be able to really flesh these things out. And so as a result, it's like I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, well I watched a movie, but I don't have any kind of lingering emotional reactions or I don't know. I mean, just if I were to compare the emotionality of this film that I had versus after the first time I watched A New Hope or Empire Strikes Back, even Return of the Jedi, there's just no comparison. So, again, I mean, <clears throat> I'm... There's, there was just a lot swirling in my head. There's, there's, there's a lot to go over. There's a lot that I've been conflicted about because I was really looking forward to this film. And there were some, some moments of brilliance in there with regards to the force connection of Kylo Ren and Rey, of the, the backstory of Luke Skywalker and the Jedi Temple, Luke actually taking on the ground forces and his whole like force illusion but in a movie that is two and a half hours long, that's not enough. You need to be able to have better decisions that were made. And so as a result, I'm giving this film two and a half stars. I went into the theater thinking this would be a four star or five star experience. But in actuality, it really was not. When I stopped to think about just the concept versus execution, the instant gratification, the missed opportunities. Um, yeah, I think that they need to do some soul searching on this and realize that they, they need to take the time to approach this stuff in a way that 
will ultimately give them a better return on their investment, so to speak. So that's about all the thoughts I have on it. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash joygasm and subscribe to get the most out of the show. Also, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube. Just do a search on Joygasm TV. In addition to iTunes and Android, you can listen to our podcast on soundcloud.com slash joygasm TV. Last but not least, search Joygasm TV on Twitch to see us stream our gaming adventures live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Central Time. And hopefully, the next episode will have our good old bro Stevovich back. Hopefully he'll be uh, right as rain. And uh, that will be great because that will be just in time for Christmas. So if you don't hear from me right on the following Monday, I want to wish each and every one of my listeners a Merry Christmas. Also a belated Happy Hanukkah because that's already gone by. And if I don't um, have the pleasure of being able to uh, talk amongst your your lovely earlobes until 2018. Also, Happy New Year to each and every one of you. So until next time, take care, everybody.